0: You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. The next we learn about this man, Moses, um, is that he uh goes out um among what the text says to be um uh his brethren right so that's another indication to me that moses uh, uh, knew uh, who he was um, and who his relatives were. Um, it could be as it's often taken to be that that's just the omniscient narrator saying uh, something that we know but that Moses doesn't yet know. So he's going to look at his brothers and sisters uh, working out uh, building pyramids but he doesn't know that they're his brothers and sisters. We just do. Um, I, I think that that's unlikely. I think that what the text is saying is that he goes out specifically to see what his brothers and sisters are doing uh, that he's not. And he sees them uh, suffering under uh, this uh, oppressive um, regime of enforced labor. And he uh, notices an Egyptian taskmaster uh, beating an Israelite uh, slave uh, almost to death. Moses, in a fit of, uh, of, 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 uh, of indignation um, or passion, uh, one of the features of Moses' character um, uh looks both ways, doesn't see anybody else around, very ambiguous phrase, was he looking for somebody to, else to step in and do something about it, or was he kind of looking to see, is he going to get caught for something bad he's about to do, we're not really sure, um, but in any event, Moses strikes down and kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. A little bit later, he sees two Siri was weighing in on the story. Okay, so so, uh, a little bit later, Moses goes back out and sees now not an Egyptian beating up on an Israelite, but two Israelites, two Hebrews that are in a heated debate. And he goes out and he tries to stop the debate, and the Israelites say to him, who made you master over us? Right, you're not you're not our leader. You're not uh, part of our people. You are. Um, you may see yourself as a Hebrew, but to us, you're an outsider. You grew up in Pharaoh's palace. You're you have nothing to do with us. Don't bother us. Don't get involved. And then he, they say something to him that is alarming. They say, "Would you mean to kill us as you killed that Egyptian?" And at that moment, Moses says to himself, people know that I committed this murder. And it's going to get back to me. So Moses runs away. And he runs away to the wilderness. He runs away to uh, the land of Midian. He finds himself um, in, uh, the, uh, um, in the village of the chief priest of Midian, a man named Jethro, a man named Yitro. And while living in, uh, um, finding a home in uh, the uh, the village of uh, of, of Yidro, he ends up marrying Jethro's daughter, Sipporah, and becoming uh, a shepherd for his father-in-law. And as a shepherd for his father-in-law, he's one day tending to uh, uh, his father-in-law's sheep and sees a strange sight on a mountain. There was a bush that was on fire, but wasn't burning. And he stops to go and look at this bush, which is in itself um, an interesting dimension of the story when you think about what does it mean to be Jewish? What do we learn about Judaism from the story? In part, think about this for a second. How carefully does one have to look at a bush on fire before one realizes that it's not burning up? It's not an immediate, immediately recognizable thing. And there are brush fires in the wilderness all the time. Right? Moses has to um, deliberately and with curiosity and intrigue go up to this bush and study it and examine it. Right? So part of what is essential to be Jewish is paying attention and examination of the world around us. Right? And that's what Moses uh, um, exemplifies and, and shows there. Well, as we know, it's a, a miraculous thing that's, uh, that's taking place at that uh, bush. And Moses is instructed to uh, take off his shoes, for he's standing on holy ground. And God speaks to Moses from uh, this bush, and says that, uh, I am the God of your ancestors, and my people, your people, Um, have been suffering for too long under the weight of uh, uh, Pharaoh's oppression in Egypt. And I've decided that now is the time to come and redeem them. And I want you to be my voice to Pharaoh in securing the release of the Israelites. Moses is a reluctant leader. He argues with God several times in that encounter, trying to persuade God that he's not the right man for the mission. Okay, if we think about this for a moment, there's a, another dimension. Right? What does it mean to uh, to, to be Jewish? What do we learn about being Jewish from this story? Right? There's a dimension of Moses, um, about Moses' humility. That's supposed to be an emblematic characteristic um, that I think is key here. And also um, that going back to what does it mean to be israel right to what does it mean to be uh, the people of israel right for people who fight with god right we don't just take god's word for it right we're not a people that god says go and do this and we're like okay sure no problem right that's not that's actually not the jewish way the jewish way is to engage in that dialectic say um are you sure you're right about this god because maybe god is wrong and right? maybe god is wrong uh, we see that with Abraham, too, right? Abraham argues with God about whether or not God should destroy Sodom. So that's, a, I think, a, um, a, 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 a worthy ideal that gets uh, brought out from this, uh, from this narrative. Eventually, uh, Moses acquiesces um, for two reasons. One, God says that there's going to be um, uh, signs that Moses can give that are proof to Pharaoh that God has sent him. And more than that, Moses' brother Aaron, who apparently has a more of a capacity uh, uh, for oratory than Moses does, will be uh, uh, able to accompany Moses and be Moses's mouthpiece. So Moses, right? So the, the, it's an interesting uh, um, uh, term that the that the Bible uses. Um, it says that Moses is aral uh, svatayim, which means he's of uncircumcised lips. It's a sort of colorful phrase. We're not exactly sure what that means. He had some kind of speech impediment, uh, most likely. Um, whether it was a lisp or whether he actually like couldn't open his mouth. Um, that's the sense that I get of uncircumcised lips. Is that like he's you know like, he spoke like this. Um So I don't know, but he had some kind of uh, What's that? Also not. Also not in the movies, right? He was not Charlton Heston, you know, with a with a great booming voice, right? That, that seems clear. Maybe he eventually was, but he wasn't then. Where did Aaron come from? Where did Aaron come from? <laughs> in the story, he basically just appears, yes. Um, now, when... Uh, um, when you know Hollywood does the story they 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 don't like you know people just sort of appearing out of nowhere so they give you know Aaron more context and backstory um but we don't really Aaron just kind of appears um and we don't even really know at first when when the text says that uh, he's Moses's brother um it's unclear if the text really meant that in the literal sense of the word right that he's your brother or maybe he meant it, you know sort of Colloquially, right? You know, he's he's one of your brethren, right? He's another Hebrew. Um, a later genealogy, uh, a, a chapter or two later in Exodus, then goes back and says, no, Aaron is actually Mo- actually Moses's brother, along with Miriam, who's who's their sister. So Moses goes to Pharaoh, right? And uh, we sort of know how this uh, story plays out. He goes to uh, old Pharaoh and says. Let my people go. Very good. Right? Um, Pharaoh uh, refuses. Uh, Moses uh, starts uh, uh, trying to give proof that he was actually sent by God. Uh, Pharaoh is able to uh, replicate all of Moses' proofs um, through his magicians. So first Moses throws down a staff and becomes a snake. Pharaoh's like, that's no big deal. I have, uh, I'll have my magicians throw down their staffs and they'll make a snake too. They did that. Um, then Moses... Uh, turns all the uh, water in Egypt into blood. Pharaoh is not so impressed by that, even though it's uh, sort of devastating for his uh, population because his magicians are also able to uh, replicate uh, the, the, um, the, the, the sign. Um, the miracle of blood is followed by ten different signs. Um, the, uh, uh, the later tradition calls them, uh, uh, Eser Makot, ten plagues. The Torah itself never uses the word Makkah. It, uh, it, it really refers to them as, as, uh, Otot and Moftim, um, which are signs and wonders, right? So these are, these are in part, uh, plagues in the sense that they're meant to be punishments for Pharaoh in Egypt, but more than that, they're meant to be Proofs to Pharaoh that God is uh, the supreme power, right? So uh, that's part of why it's not a, an unclever uh, title for this new movie, Exodus: Gods and Kings, because uh, Pharaoh in ancient Egypt um, uh, may be considered himself, but certainly was considered by his society to not, um, not metaphorically, but really, be a god. Right um, and uh, and and part of the narrative of uh, of of prove of, of of releasing the Israelites from Egyptian slavery is proving to Pharaoh and therefore to the world that there's a power greater than Pharaoh, right? And that power greater than Pharaoh is the God of the Hebrews, who in fact is the God of all humanity. The Egyptians don't realize it, right? So it's about showing the most powerful person and people in the world that there's a power greater to them that they are in- accountable to and here's the important thing drawing out what the Jewish value is that that, uh, that that power above all values justice right? that that power above all is on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized, marginalized and the subjugated Frank? Did you see that documentary about, about years ago actually they went back Yeah, I I never saw the documentary, but I've heard the arguments, and and from what I understand about this uh, new movie that's coming out, that they tried to do some of that. Um, I'm not so... I'm very skeptical of those kind of arguments. It's not that I believe that the plagues actually happened. Um, I just think that uh, it's it's sort of uh, dubious to me that... uh, um, uh, if you're already going to say that there's enough of a coincidence that, uh, all of these things simultaneously, uh, uh, happen to devastate Egypt, then why not, uh, then why not at that point say that, uh, that, that God is responsible for the plagues? Why do they have to be naturalistic at that point? Um, so it seems to me that, uh, that, that, Um, that that in reality, um, the story probably didn't happen like this. There probably weren't uh, such a thing as plagues. There may not have even been an exodus. Um, I'm sorry, I know where this is a class about Passover. But, uh, um, um, and if there was an exodus, which maybe there was, um, I think I mentioned this when we were talking about the the, the composition of the Bible. Um, There are different theories about uh, who wrote the Bible and how it got put together. One such theory is called the documentary hypothesis. Another theory which uh, is uh, in vogue nowadays is called the supplementary hypothesis, um, which means that the documentary hypothesis says there are four different uh, um, literary traditions that come together to make the Torah. The supplementary hypothesis says that there are uh, something more like seven or eight um, and that they build on top of each other. And so you can kind of scrape away the layers and see the kernel uh, story. So the kernel story, according to that, View um, uh, says that there were uh, Hebrew slaves in Egypt, but not hundreds of thousands, uh, if not millions of Hebrew slaves in Egypt, which is what the story, as in its received tradition, says that there were 600,000 Israelite men of age 20 and older who left Egypt, which means that there were something like 2.5 million, um, uh, no, sorry, uh, something like 1.8 million. Um, uh, uh, or 2 million Israelites who left Egypt, um, uh, in this, which must mean then um, a span of many generations after uh, the death of Joseph. Um, but there are other facts in the text that are somewhat contradictory to that narrative. So if that's the case, then how could Moses' mother be the daughter of Levi, who was Joseph's brother, right? So that would have been... Um, uh, uh, Joseph's niece is Moses' mother, right? And if that's the case, it seems uh, uh, unlikely that there could have been, um, by that point, in just two generations, um, uh, a population boom from 70 to 2 million, Um so there there's some things that are somewhat unbelievable about the story and its received tradition. So the the supplementary hypothesis suggests that maybe um if there was uh um a a, a population of Hebrews living in Egypt that there were maybe several hundred um and uh and that uh, that they were oppressed by Pharaoh, that there were um plagues, but uh but uh but probably not the more um obviously supernatural ones, right? So, um, you know, the death of the firstborn, as an example, or um, uh, uh, water turning to blood, uh, but maybe, like, uh, lice and vermin and locusts and things like that, um, which um, probably plagued Egypt and places like that uh, fairly frequently, uh, may have been um, events that happened around the same time. Anyway, um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I I hear... uh, um, uh, uh, arguments like that from time to time. And, you know, um, uh, um, I, I can't, I can't prove that they're not, you know, right. It's uh, just, I'm skeptical about it. Um, uh, so, um, okay. Um, so there is, uh, there are 10 of these signs, 10 of these plagues that happen. And, uh, and, and, and after each one, um, uh, Moses Reapproaches Pharaoh and says, Let my people go. Um, and after each one, uh, Pharaoh uh, ultimately says no. Later on, he starts to uh, say yes because he's unable to take the plagues, but the, as the text says, his heart becomes hardened. Um, he becomes stubborn, recalcitrant, um, and changes his mind after each one, each time, even when he says, Yes, I'll let the people go. Um, culminating ultimately in um, this final devastating plague that God is going to bring on the Egyptians, which is uh, the the death of all firstborn um, in Egypt. In preparation for that plague, um, which is an interesting feature of the story, that um, a God who's bringing these plagues on uh, the Egyptians and sparing Um, the Israelites from them, it seems like, for the most part. Um, In the case of the tenth plague, God is apparently not inclined to deliberately spare the Israelites. Instead, he has the Israelites take their own salvation into their own hands. So if you want to be spared from this plague, you need to participate in a ritual. You're going to, uh, each family, slaughter a lamb, Smear the blood of the lamb on your doorposts, so that when I come down to Egypt to kill all the firstborn, I will uh, be able to skip over your houses um, and uh, and and only affect the Egyptians' houses. That is, of course, where the term Pesach comes from, which is the Hebrew word for Passover. And Pesach is what lambs do; they skip around. They pisseach, they they hop around. Um, possibly an indication that the idea of Passover, the festival of Passover, maybe even predated this story, um, and was a, uh, um, a a springtime you know um, lamb festival of some sort. Um, but uh, but in any event, so the way the story is told is that uh, the Israelites are to slaughter a lamb, smear it on their doorpost so that uh, to serve as a sign. Uh, that uh, or, or something to ward off God as God passes through Egypt to kill um, all the firstborn. The additional thing that they're supposed to do um, is gather together uh, as, a, uh, as a, a family and have a ritual feast consisting primarily of this lamb. Um, and they're supposed to eat it with, um, with two food items. The first is called uh, maror, which are bitter herbs and the second is called matzah uh, which means unleavened bread um, the symbolism seeming to be that uh, this is a moment not only of liberation but carrying with you the taste of slavery into liberation right which is i think a key feature of the story of passover why it's a quintessential an essential jewish story because we don't only celebrate the fact that we're free, we also remember simultaneously the fact that we were an oppressed people. right? So as to never let go of the experience of oppression, I think, and I'm not alone in this, um, to, uh, to, to constantly be able to empathize with others around the world who are similarly oppressed. We never lose that taste of oppression, because by doing so, we would loot what? I have maintained for many years that the cradle of the civil rights movement is passover. Yeah. And uh, like Braunch Dangerfield, we don't get no respect we don't get no respect. <laughs> the yeah. heroes of the civil rights movement in large part Jewish <clears throat> the Jewish Nancy. Uh, yes, and uh and 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 uh, we you know it's it's a tricky thing. We don't get the credit for it that we that we should. Although, um, as Jews, I think we tend to pat ourselves on the back for it uh, maybe more than we ought to, right? So um, we do that, I think, in part because we want to get the respect that we're not getting. But what it also, um, I think, sometimes does is it... um, is it prevents us from getting involved in contemporary civil rights issues because we say, "Look, we did it then, and no one really cared or paid attention to what we did, so screw it now, right?" Um, so, uh, but any, but, what, but what you're saying is really true, and I think it's because of the, uh, the the how the Passover narrative is embedded into our bones of why Jews were so intimately involved in, the, in, in movements like the civil rights movement, um, and it was self-conscious. Um, uh, so the, the leaders of the civil rights movement drew upon the narrative of the, of the exodus all the time, right? Um, in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in framing their arguments um, and in, uh, in, in crafting the narrative of why um, uh, uh, black people in America deserve to be uh, equal under the law and, uh, and enjoy the same freedoms as everybody else. Um, so if you uh, uh, look in your... Um, uh, uh, student guide, whatever this thing is called, um, uh, in the uh, section for today's class, on um, on page 7, um, there's this great quote from uh, uh, Michael Walzer, who's a contemporary writer, or professor. And he says, This is on page 7 of that uh, section. We still believe, or many of us do, what the Exodus first taught, or what it has been commonly taken to teach about the meaning and possibility of politics and about its proper form that wherever you are, it's probably Egypt. There is a better place, a world more attractive, a promised land. And the only way to this promised land is through the wilderness. There is no way to get there except by joining together and marching. Right, and virtually every uh, um, uh, uh, movement for social change in world history has drawn on the story of the Exodus for uh, for that narrative. Right, this is a, its not only an essential Jewish story; it's an essential human story. Right, that we're that we that we're all living in a place that's worse than the place that we want to live in, and uh, and um, uh, uh, there is a better place. To get to, we just need to move there together. Um, so after the plague of uh, uh, the killing of the firstborn, uh, Pharaoh uh, lets the uh, uh, reluctantly lets the Israelites uh, go from Egypt. Um, the Israelites on their way from Egypt, um, depending on which uh, version of the story you're paying attention to in Exodus, um, either despoil the Egyptians of all their property and take everything with them as they leave Egypt, or the Egyptians um, uh, 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 graciously and generously give all of their property to the uh, Israelites as uh, they leave Egypt, but nevertheless the uh, Israelites don't leave Egypt uh, empty-handed, and uh, they march off uh, into the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. As they march into the wilderness, Pharaoh, once again, has a change of heart, sends his entire army of charioteers charging after the Israelites toward the wilderness. The Israelites find themselves trapped between uh, the Sea of Reeds and, and Pharaoh's charging army. Uh, Moses cries out to God. Um, God tells Moses, don't cry out to me, just go into the water and hold up your staff and great things will happen. Moses goes into the water and holds up his staff, the sea splits, the Israelites cross through on uh, dry land, Pharaoh's army charges into the uh, ocean after them, the sea comes crashing back down on Pharaoh's army, drowning uh, every last one of them, maybe or maybe not including Pharaoh, the text is a little bit ambiguous, um, and allowing the Israelites to pass through uh, safely on the other side, on their way to the promised land. Pharaoh lived through it in the movie, yeah. Um, In in rabbinic tradition, he lived through it as well, and he ends up living a long time, becomes the king of Nineveh during the story of Jonah, Um, uh, and uh, uh, takes the opportunity to uh, atone for his uh, um, sins in that story, which is a a narrative that I really love. Um, The Israelites are charged at that moment to commemorate the story uh, every year, by celebrating the holiday of Passover, okay? And we celebrate the holiday of Passover in two ways. Um, One, I'd say, uh, negative and one positive, okay? The negative way, which we're going to have to uh, cover just very quickly here, um, is to not eat any chametz. Okay, chametz is an important uh, technical term, um, chametz is a hard term to define, um, it means uh, leavened food products, right, so chametz is, uh, the, the better definition is, um, any opportunity for, uh, fl- for flour of any kind of grain to mix with water and be left uh, in that mixture for more than 18 minutes. That's the definition of uh, chametz. Um, so it doesn't. So leaven is a hard, is a, is not quite the right sense of it because that's why, say, uh, a Ritz cracker, even though it's not really leaven, is chametz. Um, but like the cakes that some people eat on Passover um, that seem to be leaven are not chametz. Because they don't have uh, a mixture of flour and water that is left to sit in the mixture together for more than 18 minutes. That, what's the significance of 18? Um, it's what the rabbis identified as the moment at, at which um, uh, the leavening process starts. Um, you know, there, you could you, you could sermonize on 18 if you want to. I'm not sure if that's what they had in mind, um, but uh, it's fun to speculate you why not? Um, 18 has significance in Judaism, right? Um, so, um, so... 18 is chi, that's right, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But at that point, it didn't have that significance. On I mean, it did in a sense, because the, the, the system of uh, gematria, which is um, uh, the numerical values of all Hebrew letters, have, has existed for a long time. So they certainly knew that 18 was translated to chai, I'm not sure if it like it was like sort of colloquially um, appreciated in that way, but it may have been. I don't. Know. I, I don't think that that's really the reason. I think that they actually conducted the experiments. <laughs> um, uh, they were they were pretty sensitive, uh, um, you know, proto scientists, the rabbis from time to time, and, and so they would do things like that. Um, so what does that mean? So it means so th- there are um, uh, uh, a handful of. Related prohibitions regarding Chametz on Passover, okay? You're not allowed to eat Chametz, obviously, right? So I can't, uh, eat a loaf of, I can't eat a piece of bread on Passover. You're not, also not allowed to own any Chametz on Passover. That's one of those challenging ones. The additionally challenging one is you're not allowed to even see Chametz on Passover. In particular, chametz that's in your possession. You're not allowed to see on Passover. Okay? So, the first thing is pretty easy, all things considered, to avoid eating leavened food products on Passover, although there are substantial stringencies um, when it comes to uh, eating chametz on Passover, right? Which is why someone said, why do I have to have a separate set of dishes for Passover? One of the reasons is that uh, um, uh, in in a couple weeks, we'll talk about the laws of keeping kosher, um, uh, the laws of keeping kosher also in some ways require um, uh, having separate dishes and utensils for meat and dairy um, to uh, avoid uh, the potential for mixtures of the two. Um, the rules about chametz are even more stringent because accidental mixtures of meat and dairy nullify each other if the volume of the permitted substance is more than 60 times larger the volume of the forbidden substance. Does that makes sense, All right? So if I'm cooking a pot of kosher beef stew and I accidentally drop a drop of uh, milk into it, I'm not allowed to have milk and meat together. but if the volume of the stew is more than 60 times the volume of the milk that I accidentally dropped in it accidentally dropped in it, uh, then um, uh, this is not you know excuse for like a little you know tickle flavoring there. Um, then, uh, then like, it's still kosher, I can still eat it. Not true on Passover. The rabbis, uh, said that, um, uh, that, uh, they said, um, uh, which means even one in a thousand parts is not nullified, right? So if I'm making a, uh, a, a non-chametz stew, that's a giant vat of it right and a little tiny fleck of of uh, of bread drops into the stew that's you know minuscule compared to the stew doesn't matter totally uh unkosher for passover have to chuck it out and start again right and not only that but it um it renders the dish that it was being cooked in as unkosher for passover too right because the dishes um at least in the ancient world but it's still understood to be part of the law today if any cooking substance, any cooking surface is porous, and virtually all the cooking surfaces we use today um, are porous in one way or another, um, some more than others. Metal is understood to be um, a, um, a, a relatively non-porous substance, but it still is somewhat porous, so it can retain flavor, um, and that's what we're concerned with here. So if, it, if, it, if, it, if the soup becomes chametz, then the pot becomes hametz. Uh, and then uh, it's possible to take a pot that's chametz and make it not hametz uh, by uh, boiling it in, in hot water, uh, but, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a schlep to do it. But well, what uh, was the bread doing in the Passover house? Ah, okay, so that brings us to the second piece, which is you're not allowed to have it in your house, and in part you're not allowed to have it in your house in order to avoid situations like that. Um, now, uh, what a lot of people do on Passover, um, uh, a lot of observant Jews do, is they sort of have a, they create a legal fiction um, around this. Um, so they, uh, they, they keep some of the, uh, most Jews um, do at least some kind of sweep of their house to get rid of uh, uh, chametz, especially in, um, uh, uh, in, in hidden places. You're supposed to clean out your house of chametz anywhere that, you, that food might have been brought. Right, so you're supposed to actually do a cleaning, get rid of all the crumbs, etc. Um, but let's say you have, you know, uh, your closet full of, uh, your pantry full of cereal, your, you know, your Cocoa Krispies and your Captain Crunch and all that. And you just, like, bought all these new boxes at Costco, you know, in, like, early April. And then Passover comes. You haven't eaten them yet. You don't want to, like, throw them away. That's not... So what a lot of people do is they sell their chametz. To uh, a non-Jew because a non-Jew is allowed to own chametz on Passover, no problem with that. Um, it has to be an actual sale, so that means that the sale that you do has to allow that non-Jew, if they were to desire to come into your house and eat your cap and crunch, if you if uh, if they wanted to. Um, uh, but nevertheless, so a lot of people will sell their chametz to a non-Jew on Passover and will put it away somewhere where remember the third thing you can't see it, so they'll put it away somewhere where it won't be visible on Passover. And so it's technically, even though it's, even though it's in their possession, it's technically not in their possession. They don't own it. It just might be, on their premises. Okay. So when we sell it to, to you as the rabbi, what do you do with it? <laughs> well, I, you don't sell it to me. You you sell it through me, right? So I I I I, I take it and I sell it to a non Jew. Um, uh, that reminds me. I need to figure that out. Do we sell it to Josephine? Do we sell it to? Um, we do sell it to Josephine. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, it's, because of the, because of the hour, we don't really have time to, uh, to get into all of the particulars of, uh, of this. Um, and, um, you know, there, there are obviously, like there are for a lot of, uh, Jewish practices, um, degrees of craziness, uh, to which Jews go, um, uh, in preparation for Passover. Um, uh, but, uh, um, uh. So I'll tell you what, what I do. Okay. Um, and, and Debbie mentioned at the beginning, you know, wh- why is this, you know, um, uh, uh, un- unusually cumbersome, um, on women. And I would suggest that in my household, it is not, <laughs> um, in, in my household. It, um, so I do, uh, I, I'm, I, I am, uh, um, I volunteer, to do, uh, like 95% of the, of the cleaning out of places for, uh, Passover. Um, anything that we actually have to kosher for Passover, which you could do, there's certain subst- certain materials, metal for instance, that you can turn from not kosher to Passover to kosher for Passover. The principle in Jewish law is, um, kibbul o, kach polto. So any way that, uh, it absorbs, um, uh, a forbidden substance, it can, um, secrete that forbidden substance um, in the same process so use uh metal pots say to like boil things so it would absorb flavor through boiling you can uh get that flavor out of it by dipping it in boiling water um some things however can't be koshered for passover right so um uh plastics for example are very porous materials can't be koshered for passover um uh Uh, ceramics, very porous materials, can't be kosher for Passover. Um, Glassware, on the other hand, is substantially not pyrex, because that's partially plastic. Glassware um, is less porous than metal, so it's actually much easier to kosher for Passover than than even metal is. Um, Anyway, there there are uh, a million little rules um, about uh, uh, what it means to be kosher for Passover, Um, and what I'll suggest is Um, If you um, go online and look for um, Rabbinical Assembly Pesach Guide, each year the Organization of Conservative Rabbis puts out a guide to um, what foods are kosher and not kosher for Passover and how to make your kitchen kosher for Passover. Um, And I think it's a a very well-laid-out guide and not a crazy guide, by and large. You can find crazy guides out there um, that tell you things... um, uh, uh, that uh, tell you things aren't kosher for Passover that really are kosher for Passover, um, but uh, but you know the people go to uh, great lengths to be stringent on Passover because of that principle. Um, unlike root in general, um, even a little bit um, uh, spoils the whole bunch, right? Of uh, of chametz. Now, one other thing that someone asked at the beginning that uh, we we need to make mention of, um, which is, um. Peanut butter. Oh, Who has peanut butter? Okay. So, uh, so I'm going to expand that a little bit. There's a category of <coughs> foods called kitniot, which is the Hebrew word for legumes. Um, and kitniot um, uh, uh, have been banned on Passover um, for Ashkenazi Jews. Remember we talked about different... Um, Ethnicities of Jews, the ban on Passover for Ashkenazi Jews um, uh, since the Middle Ages. Kidneyo in that context um, was uh, likely referred to things like rice and beans, um, and uh, and and were forbidden uh, for two reasons, most likely one is uh that they were generally stored with uh other grains and so it was possible that you know your your bag full of beans might accidentally have uh some uh some you know wheat residue on it um and then when you go to you know soak the beans in water you uh, all of a sudden end up with chametz. The other reason, possibly, is that these were substances that people uh, tended to grind up and make breads out of, um, and so it got to be confusing. Um, so they were uh, banned because of their, you know, sort of proximity to uh, to other grains. This is only Ashkenazi Jews. Um, Spartic Jews never had this prohibition in large part because if Sephardic Jews had this prohibition, they wouldn't have had anything to eat at all on Passover because they lived in countries where all they ate were rice and beans and things like that. Um, so Sephardic Jews never had this prohibition. Um, so today, Ashkenazi Jews, uh, by and large, um, still uh, uh, avoid eating kidney oat on Passover. Um, but over time, more and more things were sort of added to the list of kidney oats. Um, that some of which make sense and some of which make absolutely no sense. Um, so corn uh, is one that was added that in some ways makes sense, right? If the reason that we are forbidden from kidney oat is because they may be stored in the same silos as grains and that we use them in some ways the same as grain, corn makes sense. Peanuts, on the other hand, make absolutely no sense. And some Ashkenazi Jews um, included them in the category of kidney oat um, many Ashkenazi Jews today, both in the Orthodox and non-Orthodox worlds, no longer consider peanuts uh, in the category of kidney and are therefore kosher for Passover. And therefore, peanut butter, so long as it's natural peanut butter um, without additives, would be kosher for Passover. So, if you ask me, I don't eat kitniot on Passover, although my wife would like us to. Um, but I will eat natural peanut butter on Passover. I will. I'll, I'll go before Passover. This is another uh, anomaly of uh, the laws of keeping kosher for Passover is some things that um, uh, one would need to be certified as kosher for Passover when they are bought on Passover. If you buy them before Passover, don't need to be certified as kosher for Passover. The reason is the so like complex technicality of Jewish law Um Something uh, uh, before Passover, chametz is nullified in one parts to 60, like everything else that's non-kosher. So if I buy, let's say, orange juice before Passover that might accidentally have some, you know, accidental drop of chametz in it, um, if I buy it before Passover and leave it unopened until Passover, then it follows the rules of before Passover. But if I were to buy that, I couldn't buy that same orange juice on Passover because the rules at that point follow Passover, which is even if it's one part in a thousand, it nullifies the whole thing. Follow me, right? So what I do regarding peanut butter is I will buy um, a, a, a jar of natural peanut butter where the only ingredient is peanuts or even peanuts and salt before Passover uh, and, uh, even if it doesn't have a, 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 kosher for Passover label on it, um, and I will, I will, uh, uh, very confidently eat it on Passover, okay? That's me, um, uh, you are welcome to follow my practice if you want, um, although there are, uh, um, likely to be rabbis who disagree with me, um, but anyway, that's the deal with peanuts and peanut butter on Passover, um. <laughs> What? Well, they they are except for they they don't really follow the um uh the, the, the general reasoning behind why legumes are forbidden on Passover, right? We don't consume peanuts in that same way. Uh, we don't consume peanuts in the same way that we consume, uh, you know, kidney beans, right? Or or so. Uh, um, anyway, um, okay. Uh, I think that's all I want to say right now about uh, chametz on Passover. Okay. okay. Uh, a- any questions about that? Um, yeah, I got one. Yeah. Is milk uh, kosher? Milk is kosher for Passover. Milk is one of the things that you can buy it uh, before Passover without a kosher for Passover uh, uh, label. Um, and depending on who you ask, you can also buy it on Passover without a kosher for Passover label. Um, but many people will say it needs a kosher passover label. Do they that sell, professor. Professor. Do sell kosher milk? They do sell kosher milk, yes. Um, is it kosher? Not very often. Cow yeah. uh, No, so what, uh, what makes it kosher is, uh, is, is only the assurance that it is uh, 100% cow's milk. Uh, and um, there are opinions um, that I follow uh, that say um, uh, since the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act, um, in the early 20th century, um, there's not really a risk that you're going to buy a jug of milk at the grocery store that is like partially rat's milk. Um, and, so, um, and so you're... Rat's you're, you're, milk? Um, whatever, you know, uh, sheep, whatever, yeah. I mean, if it was sheep's milk, it would be fine, but yeah. What is the word on page? Uh, okay, so we haven't gotten to the Seder, but all right, we're going to do the Seder in five minutes, okay? So, um, so, the, so, that's, so that's sort of the, the negative dimension of, of Passover. The, um, the, the positive dimension of Passover, the, the major ritual of, uh, of Passover is the Seder. Seder means order, um, and, uh, and it's called that because um, it's not just a meal that takes place on the first night of Passover, or if you're in the diaspora, the first... Two nights of Passover, because if you remember from the class you did on the Jewish holidays, in the diaspora we add a day onto most biblical holidays um, because of reasons I don't want to get into at the moment, right? So, um, uh, but someone asked, why do we have two Seders? Um, It's because um, we uh, aren't positive which night is really the first night. So we're doing it both nights just to be safe. That's what we're doing. Uh, and, uh, and it's not just a meal. It's, um, I like this terminology. My teacher, Ron Wolfson, calls it um, a talk feast, okay? So it's, a, it's in part, the point is to have a festive meal, but it's also to, um, to retell the story of the Exodus, in, in, a, sen- in a sense, to, to live, to embody, um, to imbibe the story of the Exodus. Um, that uh, phrase, talk feast, uh, that I mentioned um, from Ron Wolfson, um, this is a great book. Uh, for beginners and Passover experts alike, um, How to uh, Enhance Your Seders and Your Passover um, by Ron Wolfson. It's really great. So I'm going to pass it around. You can take a look at it. Another great resource for you to see. Um, so the Seder is a, is a talk feast. It's an attempt to, uh, to, to, to ritualize a telling of the Passover story. Following this idea that's embedded, so it's, uh, we use the text that we use for it is this book that you, that you have in front of you or in piles in front of you called the Haggadah. Haggadah is the Hebrew word for telling, right? And so that's why, we, that's why it's the book we use. It's a, it's a book of the telling of the story of Passover. Um, but it's a strange telling. We don't tell a narrative in the same way that I just did a few minutes ago. We tell it through a series of uh, openings for questions, which is why I opened the class with an invitation to questions. Um, an opening for questions um, and uh, and and symbols um, uh, and um, attempts to uh, um, personalize and internalize the messages and themes and narratives of Passover. What the Haggadah says, this is I think this, the, the, the the essential piece of it, is beholdor. Vador which means in each and every generation, a person is obligated to see him or herself um, as if uh, he or she had uh, personally left Egypt. And so the experience of the Seder is meant to sort of walk us through um, the, the process of redemption, right? And, uh, and you start the Seder uh, uh, using the symbols of, um, of, of poverty and oppression. So the, the, um, one of the major... Um, uh, tangible, edible symbols of the Seder is matzah, which is bread that has no chametz, right? Um, uh, Which is uh, um, interestingly, alternately uh, uh, the bread of poverty, um, the bread that uh, our ancestors ate when they were slaves in Egypt, but also in some ways the bread of liberation because this is what our ancestors, according to the tradition, cooked when they left uh, Egypt because they needed to do so in a hurry. Um, So you'll see that I have uh, three matzas here. I have matzahs around the table. You can sample some matzah. We won't go through the whole seder and do it, but that's one of the early parts of the, of the seder itself is to uh, uh, ritualize the, uh, uh, the notion that uh, matzah symbolizes an aspect of the slave experience. Um, we, uh, um, uh, we do kiddush over a cup of wine. We actually are supposed to have four cups of wine at the seder um, uh, which uh, symbolize there are uh, four terms for redemption used in the Bible. Um, and so we drink a cup of wine uh, to symbolize each of those different aspects of redemption. Someone mentioned before uh, five cups of wine. Um, it's because uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the text, it seems like there's a fifth uh, uh, term used for redemption. Um, so the rabbis couldn't quite decide who was right. Is there four Terms for redemption are five, so they say we're only going to make blessings over four cups of wine, but we'll have a fifth cup of wine at the seder, and that's where you get this tradition of having a cup of wine for Elijah the prophet. Um, Elijah the prophet is a figure from uh, the biblical book of Kings, um, who, uh, according to legend, never died. Um, and uh, um, and because he never died, uh, what he does is you know sort of wander the earth and uh, visit things like. Babies, brisses, and people, saters, um, sampling wine at each thing, uh, but uh, but in reality, in reality, uh, in reality, uh, Elijah's role is uh, to be the, uh, the the messenger that heralds ultimate redemption, right? And so the seder is hearkening back to an earlier redemption, but it's yearning forward also to a time where there'll be total liberation, total freedom which is in part why someone asked about the relationship between Passover, the Seder, and the Last Supper. It's, uh, um, some people say, scholars say, it may be unlikely that the Last Supper was a Passover Seder, although the Gospels seem to indicate that it was. But from a narrative perspective, from a thematic perspective, it makes total sense why the Gospels would portray the Last Supper as a Passover Seder, because Passover is about an ancient redemption, and Jesus symbolized um, ultimate redemption, right? And that's, that's really, that's the point of Elijah coming to Seders too, is to symbolize the possibility, the prospect of ultimate redemption of, uh, of the world. The other symbols that we have at the Seder, and it's, uh, we have them uh, contained on the, on the Seder plate, um, so, and you have some of these around you as well that, that I'm hoping that you'll uh, sample um, as we leave tonight. Um, so you have, um, uh, in the center you have Maror, uh, which is uh, usually horseradish, um, uh, which uh, is a bitter herb, right, symbolizing the, uh, the, the bitterness of slavery. You have charoset, uh, which this is sort of like a makeshift charoset that I made because I, I didn't really have time. So this is like applesauce and walnuts. But charoset um, is uh, supposed to symbolize uh, the mortar of the bricks that the uh, Israelites had to make in e- uh, when they were slaves in Egypt. Um, but really what the charoset is for is to uh, temper the flavor of the uh, maror. The hazeret, which, uh, which we have on the Seder plate, is an interesting thing. Um, there's a dispute... Um, about, um, about what is supposed to be the right um, uh, plant to make the bitter herb. Um, so some people say it's horseradish. Some people say it's like a bitter leaf. Um, so we have both traditions on the uh, Seder plate. We have a roasted egg. Um, uh, I roasted this myself. I'm very <laughs> proud of it. Uh, so we have, thank you. So we have a roasted egg, which uh, is supposed to symbolize the Paschal Sacrifice. Um, which was uh, roasted. You have a, uh, a, a shank bone, um, courtesy of Josephine, um, uh, that um, uh, is that symbolizes um, God's outstretched arm uh, that uh, that uh, uh, led the liberation of the uh, Israelites. One of the curiosities of the seder and of and by the way, the thing that you pass around the foods. By the way, um, so that you have you, we usually. Um, uh, um, take the matzah. Uh, well, well, there are two things that you do. You eat the maror plain with the charoset, and then the other thing that we do is eat the, uh, we eat a sandwich of it. So we eat a matzah with the maror and charoset together in, you know, um, the, the world's first sandwich, but maybe the world's worst sandwich. So. Um, <laughs> um, I have so I have friends. I just like uh, we're, we're running out of time, but I um, uh, um, uh, I have um, uh, Sparty friends who have a tradition of uh, serving serving lamb at their Passover seder, and what they do is uh, they really make a good uh, sandwich there. They take the lamb on the matzah with the with the maror and the uh, and the haroset. And, like, that's the sandwich. And I have to tell you, if you have an opportunity to have a sandwich like that at your Seder... Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, uh, so what I was about to say about the shake bone uh, symbolizing God's outstretched strong, one of the curiosities of the Passover Seder is that there's a major character from the story of the Exodus that is never mentioned once in the Passover Seder. Who's the major character that's never mentioned? Moses. Look through the Passover Haggadah, a traditional Haggadah. Moses is never mentioned in the Haggadah, right? Because the story, as it's told in this telling, um, uh, emphasizes God's role in redemption and downplays uh, humanity's role in redemption. And then the last thing that that you have on the Seder plate, one of the central symbols here, is uh, karpas, um, which is a, a green vegetable um, that, uh, that that symbolizes the um, uh, the the springtime nature of uh, of the holiday. We usually dip it in salt water um, to symbolize the uh, the tears of the um, Israelites. But the truth of the matter is, and as you look in the Ron Wolfson book, what you'll see is um, that the point of Karpas, which happens at the beginning of the Seder, is I think really. Uh, even though you know, uh, it doesn't happen in a lot of seders, it should happen at yours, this is to have an appetizer at the beginning of seder. So when you have karpas, like serve like a crudite, a vegetable, so people aren't asking for the whole thing when do we eat. Because they'll already be and they'll be okay. Um, so, uh, and you dip it in salt water because it's delicious. Okay? So um, Not only because it's tears. So that's, uh, that's a karpas. Okay. Um, uh, really quickly, any questions about the seder? Uh, oh, that is uh, probably mixed with uh, to make it red is probably like beet, beets or something, beets, yeah, like beet juice. Yeah, yeah beet juice. Yeah. So if you like, before you leave tonight, you're happy. Uh, I'm happy for you to look through. There are a million different Haggadahs out there, and so therefore, there's a million different possibilities for the seder. And I also just want to share with you uh, as a as an act of self promotion. Um, uh, a, a great little volume um, uh, to add like, depth and meaning to the holiday of Passover that was put out last year, edited by um, our Rabbi Emeritus' son, Menachem Creditor, um, uh, about, with different essays from different rabbis about uh, Passover. Uh, myself included in the volume. So uh, you can get it on Amazon. Oh, please, no. uh, Hold your applause. Uh, Wait till you read it. Wait till you read it, right. Uh, But anyway, you can go on Amazon. You can see this slavery, freedom, and everything in between. Um, uh, So it's a a nice way to uh, to enhance your uh, Passover celebrations. We are out of time. Thank you very much.